From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. Maple Grove resident Lori Carnes knows what to do when the tax man cometh. Carnes has more than 37 years of real estate experience and roughly $66 million worth of sales to her credit. But what she really likes to do these days is help other commercial property owners lower their tax bills. As owner of Land for Sale, Carnes works with property owners on tax appeals. Taking a deep dive into data and reports, she guides owners through the tangled web of Minnesota's property tax system, the most complex system of its kind in the country, in her view. Reporter Brian Johnson speaks with Carnes about some of her most notable tax appeal cases, how she got into this line of work, and what property owners can consider doing if they believe their taxes are too high. Here with Lori Carnes, broker and owner of Land for Sale, Inc., and you're in Maple Grove, is that correct? That's correct. All right. Well, um, just reading from your website here, um, I want to start out by, um, it talks about how you dig into the data, write rock-solid reports, and know the ins and outs of the tax appeal process, so you don't have to. Um, What... Can you talk a little bit about that and expand on that a little bit and um, maybe explain why it pays for property owners to um, have you on their side in in this whole process of um, tax appeals and assessments and so on? Well, Minnesota has the most complex property tax system in the country. And the assessors are always presumed to be right with their valuation. So it is the owner's um, obligation to demonstrate why the assessor should lower the assessment or change it. And so it takes a lot of data and a lot of knowledge of how the system works. And it's a very technical process, and if you don't cross your T's or dot your I's correctly, your appeal can be dismissed. Okay. And so uh, what, what do you think are some of the most common mistakes people might make if they're just out there winging it or, or um, maybe trying to wade through this process on their own? Well, first of all, it's a legal process, this thing called the Minnesota Tax Court, and I'm not an attorney, but I have to engage an attorney to do the legal piece of it because depending on the type of entity that owns the real estate – Oftentimes, you must have an attorney file it. You can't file it yourself. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, you, you did mention that Minnesota is the most complex property tax system in the country. Um, can you can you provide an example of that, maybe how it's different here compared to somewhere else? One of the issues is classification. 
we have, I believe, over 30 different types of classification for the property. And the classification can actually impact your property tax amount more than the valuation. Hmm. So the classification is very complex, and that's something else that you can also appeal in addition to the value. Hmm. Okay. And this applies to, uh, I assume your clients are both in residential and commercial um, properties. Is that right? You talk no, a little bit I, about I that. I primarily do commercial. Okay. Uh, to do appeal houses, typically, first of all, the assessors are typically right. Unless you have a really mm-hmm. unusual home, mm-hmm. if you have a, a typical house and typical subdivision, the assessors have plenty of data mm-hmm. to value your property, and they're typically right. And it's a long, complicated, expensive process, and it usually isn't worth it to do residential. Mm-hmm. It costs more than you would save. Okay. So what is a typical client, uh, and say, maybe describe a typical property that you're um, assessing and um, do office buildings? Um, what's, what's sort of the... the Oh, I do the gamut. I do office buildings and factories and bank branches and hotels and mini storage and um, ready-mix plants, and I've done heavy equipment dealership, and um, I do a lot of land, done Mm -hmm. daycare, um, pretty much the gambit. Mm. Auto body, I'm working on a lot of auto body shops right now. Really? Mm Mm-hmm which are really interesting because of the the current situation because hardly anyone's driving, so they're not getting an accident. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so the auto body business is really struggling right now. Wow. Huh. And what other impacts are you seeing out there um, with regard to the, the coronavirus situation? Um, well, that's going to get interesting because a lot of, you know, if you have a tenant, if you're a landlord, you have a tenant at, say, a restaurant or a gym or a beauty salon and they have to be closed, then they don't have any money to pay the rent, then you don't have the money to pay the property taxes. So hopefully, A, Governor Walsh won't keep these restrictions going too long, and B, um, they are able to tap into these loans that the government is offering because if you do not pay your property taxes, you can't appeal them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You no, know, you can file it, but if your taxes are go unpaid for a year, your appeal will automatically get thrown out. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting times we're living in. Yes, it is. And as far as the coronavirus impact on property values, that's another thing that's a little bit weird about understanding Minnesota property tax assessment mm-hmm. system. They lag the market by two years. Mm-hmm. So whatever impact this has on real estate, nobody knows that now, um, will not show up in your real estate assessment until your tax is payable in 2022. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing a lot of people can't wrap yourself around. I mean, even think back if you had a house before the last recession when the market was going up, 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 up. You would look at your statement in, like, 2006 and say, and you would laugh. And you would say, oh, I could sell my house for so much more than the assessor has it valued. Right. 
And then you go a couple years into the recession, say in 2008 or 2009, when the market had dropped, and you look at that and you call the assessor and you say, Mr. or Mrs. Assessor, there's no way I could sell my house for that amount of money. And they would say, could you two years ago? Mm. So that's a part that people really have a, a, a trouble wrapping themselves around. Another thing that's unique about the valuation that the Minnesota tax court uses, the way, because I'm also a commercial appraiser, mm -hmm. the way that you value the property is pretty unique. The appraisal or the broker price opinion that you have to write for tax appeal is a different animal than you would, say, for underwriting standards for a bank loan. Hmm. So if you had a shopping center and um, you wanted to get a mortgage, and your bank engaged me as an appraiser to write an appraisal for the mortgage, and then the same day I was engaged to write a valuation for the property tax appeal, mm -hmm. the reports would likely come to very different value conclusions. Mm. Same property, same day. Interesting. Well... Can you talk a little bit about your process? Say somebody hires you to appeal uh, your property taxes. What what do you do from there? You actually go on a tour of the property. You dig into the numbers. Uh, how does that work? Well, the first thing is somebody needs to contact me to get my opinion whether they think they should even appeal. Mm -hmm. Because the assessors overall do a pretty good job. Mm. And most of the time, they're right. Mm -hmm. So I may look at like a hundred properties and only identify one or two that should potentially be appealed. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing is to make sure that your property should be appealed. And again, that's something that you need to understand the rules and the process. Most people really can't make that determination. Um, mm -hmm. So first of all, there's no point in filing an appeal if you're not going to be successful, it just wastes a lot of time and resources, including the assessors. They have mm -hmm. a lot of things to do, right. you know, and they don't need to be tying up their time with appeals that made no sense to file. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. And then beyond that, um, if you file an appeal, if you have to, first thing you have to determine is it an income-producing property. So you think of an income-producing property as a multi-tenant office building or a shopping center or an industrial flex building, but an, an income-producing property also may be an owner-occupied property that you rent to another entity that you own. Mm -hmm. Most businesses will have an LLC that owns the property and then they rent from it, but the state of Minnesota calls that an income-producing property. And the reason that it's important is every year you have to submit financial information, a very precise set of financial information by August 1st of that property. And if you do not submit that information or you don't submit all of the information, the tax court will throw it out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, there's been some cases, uh, Walmart cases that were um, dismissed because I think it was the subway or the hair place or whatever they had in there, um, they didn't supply the right complete information, and they threw out the whole case. Hmm. So that's really important thing to navigate and make sure you're doing the right information at the right time. Okay. So that, that's part of the process, and then the process does take a while. 
it typically takes a couple years. Mm. Um, okay. And so, yeah, part of my process is once I, I have an assignment, I set up a file, and I typically only take, I don't like to take more than 12 to 15 new cases a year because I spend a lot of time on them. If I took 100 cases, I really couldn't do them justice. I may spend a couple of weeks. So once I know I have your your office building or your mini storage or your shopping center, then I always read finance and commerce every day. And then any articles that I feel are relevant to your property, I file them. Uh-huh. And then when the time appropriate time comes, then I go and I do a very, very thorough inspection of the property. And then I write a report, and that may take me a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And I send that to the assessor, and then the assessor will come out and look at the property with me, and they typically zoom through fairly fast. Uh-huh. You know, not necessarily the detail that I go through, and then, and then we negotiate. Okay. So you might see things that the uh, um, the county assessor or whatever doesn't see because of the time you spend on it. Is that exactly. correct? Exactly. And I like to talk to people. I like to interview not just the owner. I like to deal, if it's manufacturing, I like to talk to someone that's on the floor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to know somebody that's actually working in this facility every day. If there's a facilities manager that's a perfect person for me to deal with, you know, are there any problems with the property? Does, does the roof leak? Is there mold? Is there anything that would, would impact the value of the property. Um, how is it laid out? Is it? Are there sprinklers? Sprinklers mm-hmm. is a really big deal because mm-hmm. if you do not have sprinklers, you cannot change the property. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a property, for example, I recently did a tax appeal on a printing plant. It's in the city of St. Paul, mm-hmm. and it was, you know, built like in the 60s. And it is right in the city, and it has no city water, Mm. which actually is not as odd in St. Paul as you would think. I've owned properties myself in St. Paul, and then I've always had to go through the whole laundry list of utilities to see, could I get water, could I get sewer? And because it has no city water, it had no sprinklers. Mm. And so the, and I, then I even spoke, so I go into a lot of detail. I ended up having a long conversation with the, with the St. Paul Fire Department. And they told me they kind of, okay, well, we're not going to shut your plant down, but this is, you cannot change the use. I mean, I'm not talking about even adding another physical addition or moving walls. You have so much square foot of manufacturing, and you cannot change that. If you change that, then we require you to have sprinklers. And I did a whole lot of research to find out the cost to add sprinklers to that facility was $600,000. Because they'd have to have a tank, picture like a city water tower, they would need a tank that was 48 foot tall. Wow. Yeah. And then you look at it and say, well, you know, this is a really good location. It's a very attractive location. Um, Would somebody buy this and tear it down and redevelop it? But then if you can't get city water, no. Right. Because you couldn't build on it because you can't get sprinklers unless you build the whole tower thing. Mm. 
So I really, really dig in. I had to, you know, and every property has, you know, there may be something like, like that's a unique one. What is it about this property? So what I really, the question I really have to ask, what the tax appeal is all about is we're saying let's pretend. Let's pretend this property sold on such and such a date. Who bought it? What did they do with it? And what do you think they would have paid for it? Mm. So when I run into some, I do some really interesting properties. I like to do kind of the the unique ones. I mean, I do all kinds of properties, but I kind of like the challenge of doing unique ones. And yeah. sometimes that's just, it maybe had been built years ago and nobody wants that type of property or the market has changed so much, like office now at least up until a couple of weeks ago, <laughs> the preference in office was you want to be on light rail. If you're not on light rail, you're having trouble attracting employees. So you may have an absolutely beautiful building in great condition, but it's not in a location that's working mm. with the market. And, you know, the market always changes. Yeah. So uh, industrial, one of the most important things is clear height. Yeah. Well, I can see where there are a lot of different scenarios that can come up here when you're looking at a, a property and, and the unique circumstances of how it's used, et cetera. Is there anything particularly unusual that has stood out in your work? Like, hmm, I didn't expect to see this or learn this about a certain property. Um, does anything jump out at you? And the one with the water... The water tower is a pretty good example, I guess, but uh you have any yeah, any there, other memorable yeah. ones? Yeah, there was another one that I did that was a, um, it, it appeared at first just to be a typical manufacturing facility, um, and so there was, uh, it's a family business, and they got a very large contract to, they were in, um, kind of the, the metal business, metal fabrication, they got a very large contract to make very big things. And they did not physically have the space in the space they were renting. So they were looking, and they, they had some kind of unique needs, and they were actually looking to build, and they were concerned about the time it would take. And they, through the grapevine, found out about this building that was perfect for their needs and that the company that owned it was failing. And so it was never on the market, and so they landed up paying, um, really overpaying for the property, really paying way too much for the property. And they paid, in 2015, they paid $7.7 million for it. Um, the bank appraisal came in at 6.3, and it was actually their banker who I had met because I tax appealed the shopping center that he was located in, mm -hmm. told them to call me. And the assessed value was $5.3 million. So, mm -hmm. so they paid more than the assessed value. Mm -hmm. And I got it reduced to $3.6 million. Mm -hmm. And how I did that is what was unusual about this property. For industrial, you think of industrial and the industrial type that is really hot, and the one I think that's really going to survive no matter what it is that we're going through here, is distribution. So if you think of a warehouse or even a factory, 
think about there's always a, a, a dock door for the truck to come in. And then what that sort of looks like, and it's set at a particular elevation, so the truck can back right in through the hole in your building and load and unload efficiently. So this building, which is about 60-some thousand square feet, had no dock doors. Mm. So that was the, the hook. That was the thing that made this so peculiar. So for this particular company, what worked for them is you, you would the trucks would drive in the overhead door, you know, like a big garage door? So they will come in through there with all the heavy steel on the truck, and they would unload it with their special crane, and then the truck would drive out the other side of the door. So if you think about this, they had like basically two roads through their manufacturing part of their building. So that took about, I think, 10,000 square feet out of production or mm. storage because they had to keep it open all the time for the truck to drive in this door and drive out that door. So then I had to do a whole lot of research, and, and I found out it wasn't simple just adding, just putting in the dock door, because it wasn't graded properly mm. for the truck to come in. And then it turned out to be, I don't remember the numbers now, but like a, a couple hundred thousand dollars. You know, it was very expensive to do that. So to value this property... I had to look at other properties that were similar size and count how many doors they had and call the buyers, you know, that was important for the buyers to have those doors. And then I had to take the cost of adding those doors off what the property was valued at. Mm. And that's how I got. And I looked at, oh, I think I looked at um, many, many properties in order to do this. My report contained sales of 56 different buildings. Wow. And um, a lot of them I looked at and says, well, I can't use this building. Because that's the other thing, because the rules for, again, the rules for appraising or, or doing a broker price opinion for a tax appeal are different than other sorts of appraising. Mm-hmm. So you, can only, you can't use what's called like a lease fee sale. A lease fee sale is, um, the best example is a Walgreens. I want to buy the real estate for a Walgreens because I know Walgreens is going to take care of absolutely everything and pay the rent, and I just get a check every month. So it's kind of like having a bond. And so those typically sell for a lot more money than the building would if it was empty mm-hmm. or if it was Joe's Pharmacy Yeah. Be- because people are buying on the strength of Walgreens. And so for a property tax bill, we don't use those numbers. So I had to go through all these sales. Oftentimes what happens in a lot of property types, um, manufacturing, dental clinics, veterinary clinics, um, ready-mix plants, you're buying the business along with the real estate banks. That happens a lot because we're seeing a lot of consolidation in our banking industry. And so I have to go through a lot of effort when I see the sales of of calling people and doing a lot of research and say, did you buy the business with this real estate? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the the price that they paid for the real estate really doesn't reflect just the real estate. Sure. So when I went through all those properties, I had to I had to figure that out too, and that takes that's why it typically will take me a couple of weeks to do each property. Mm-hmm. I could tell you most people that do what I do don't do the way I do it. 
They don't spend the time. They don't do the research. Um, when I look, when I narrow it down to sales that I think are or leases that I think are accurate, I get out in my car. I don't just look at the outside. I actually go in, knock on the door, and see if I can get somebody to talk to me. Mm-hmm. Tell me about your building. Tell me about the condition it was in. Tell me what the story behind the sale of how you acquired it. Tell me how much money you had to put in to fix it up for you to occupy it. So I do a heck of a lot of research in order to get the results that I get. Well, and for you, from what I understand, the results are very important because that's how you make your money, right? If I understand it correctly, if if um, if there's a if if the if your client saves money, that's how you get paid. Is that is that right? Yeah, if I'm engaged on a contingent fee basis, that's correct. Well, how did you get into this line of work? Well, you know, it was during the recession, the Great Recession. I, my company's called Land for Sale because that's what I did. Mm-hmm. I sold land to developers, and I had sold $66 million worth of land. And I was blessed to work with the best developers in the Twin Cities, and I learned a lot about what I call land economics. So to figure out how much a developer can be paid, can buy land for, and still make it work. And so this was back in 2006 when the market was just going crazy. And like I would read Finance and Commerce every week and look at the sales and, 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 and what people were paying for land. And I'd scratch my head and I'd say, they can't possibly make money on this. They're way paying too much. Because back then, everybody and their brother was a land developer, and you could get mortgage without any any anything. And so I talked to a friend of mine who was a commercial mortgage broker, and I said, you know, these banks, they need to hire me to tell them not to do these deals. And, <laughs> and he said, Lori, the only way they would listen to you is if you were an appraiser. So I got my appraiser's license. And so... Back, you know, the market just didn't get any better. And, and back in 2009, I was listing um, a farm for a, my developer client who needed to sell it to fund his business. Mm-hmm. And I was doing all my research, which is the part I like best about the brook, which was all of the research and all of the background. And I um, discovered that the county assessor had the land value double what we were even asking for it. And so I, you know, I actually met with my city assessor, and I learned about this whole process, and and my client had everything all filed, and we reduced it. And then the market just didn't get any better, and I still had to eat. So um, I landed up going back to everybody I had sold land to over the years and then doing a bunch of tax bills. And then as I continued in my appraisal training, you know, I learned how to value all the commercial buildings as well. So I got into that and start in 2013, and that's really fun. And I thought all my zoning and my land development background was really only applicable to land, but that's not true at all. A lot of times what I use to re- get these values reduced is really studying the zoning code. And zoning codes are a weird animal. They're different in every city, and different things are different ones. Like I was doing a small little medical clinic, and um, I realized that um, they didn't have enough. The assessor was like a a split level, 
and they were valuing the whole square footage of the whole building. But that by studying the zoning code, I realized there wasn't adequate parking that they could really only use the top floor mm. without using parking on properties that we weren't appealing. Mm-hmm. So the zoning code was really the key to doing that one. Mm. And so that's kind of how I got into it. But mm-hmm. but in all my various training, I would say the training, the, the thing that gave me the most background to do this was high school debate. Really? Yep, high school debate. I was a debater all through high school. I absolutely loved it. I'm a total geek. And this is before the Internet, right? So, right. So my, my dad was just great. And he would just drive me around in different libraries because there was a small library where I lived just to see maybe I could find some magazine or congressional hearing or some kind of book that the other high school team wouldn't have that I could have an edge because I could have better data. Oh, Okay. And so as a debater, I had a, we had to both write our own case, you know, to present. But my job on the debate team was really to take apart the other sides. Mm. So that's a big part of the process, too. So as I'm negotiating with the assessor, you know, I'll give them my maybe 100-page report, and I could tell you nobody else really does what I do when I do this. And then the assessor may come back and say, but, Lori, you didn't include this sale and this lease and this other data. And then I spend a lot of time going through the data they gave me to see if it has validity or, you know, that really shouldn't be used. There's a lot of problems with that sale. Right. The guy sold it to his brother-in-law or sold it with the business or whatever. Sure, sure. So your experience in high school debate really paid off. Yes, it did. And and that, uh, I know you have other activities and hobbies, including um, just reading from your website, uh, everything from classical piano, biking, golf, cross-country skiing, yoga. And you're the president and founder of the Maple Grove Critical Thinking Discussion Group. What, yeah. uh, what can you tell me about that quickly? Uh, how did you uh, get the idea to start that group? Well, somebody else started a group years okay. ago in Minnetonka that I belonged to, and and I really enjoyed it. And then the gentleman oh, who was behind the whole thing was moving to Georgia. And I actually that chapter did survive, but I had questions that it would survive without him behind it. So I started my own mm-hmm. in Maple Grove, and I don't know how long I've been doing this. It's been a long time. And so we meet every month, and we have all kinds of various topics. And I get a lot of speakers from the university, and and I am just amazed at the quality of speakers I can get. Um, and I don't pay anybody, you know, because we just I charge five bucks a head, and it just pays the rent at the Maple Grove Community Center. And it's so it's just the the idea is just to learn about all kinds of different things, and then just you know, use critical thinking schools, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And we do have, you know, critical thinking, like professors and stuff come once in a while to talk about different aspects of critical thinking. But it's basically, you know, questioning what you're hearing. And in, in like with, with this COVID-19, for example, mm-hmm. um, you know, since I love data. So the Minnesota Health Department has this wonderful web page. And every day they post how many people have been tested, how many people have it, how many died, how many have recovered. And so what I've been able to conclusively say every day, and now we we have like about a thousand cases, is 
the mono, and we're only testing people that are at very high risk because the testing is such short supply. Mm-hmm. We've never passed three percent of people that of the high risk people that have the illness. And then only a small percent are hospitalized, and even a smaller percent, unfortunately, die. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the people that die were already pretty sick. Mm-hmm. So I'm using my critical thinking and my statistical analysis to look at that every day. Mm. Interesting. Well, what else would you like to share with me before I let you go? Any other, anything else we haven't covered? Well, you know, I would just invite people to contact me if they think their property or they don't even know if their property tax should be appealed Mm -hmm. because they say it's a complicated thing to determine. And I can, within a few minutes, see whether I think it could be appealed. Makes sense. I can't tell someone what it's worth. But I could tell in a few minutes it's not worth what the assessor says it is. Okay. Well, great conversation, Lori. I appreciate your time, and, and people can find you uh, find you on the web, right? Landforsale.com? Landforsaleinc.com. Landforsaleinc.com. Great. All right. Well, take care, and uh, good, uh, good talking to you, and um, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Okay. Thanks, Frank. All right. Thank you. Bye. Take care, Lori. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.